electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight, one of the world's greatest hedge fund managers getting bullish on stocks, and it's all thanks to AI. The who and why ahead is working from home morally wrong. Elon Musk thinks so. What do you think? As the U.S. careens toward a possible debt default, there are two words that matter more than any other to business. We have them with Frank Luntz. Montana just became the first state in America to completely ban TikTok for everybody. A scary new study ahead. Plus, has the storm finally passed for the regional banks? One signal that may have investors breathing a major sigh of relief? The WNBA let's score a record-breaking year. The commissioner joining us ahead of the new season's tip-off. That and the CEO of CNH all over the next hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here on the East and good afternoon out West, everybody. We're going to get to all that in the next hour. But first up tonight, continued reaction to CNBC's blockbuster interview with Elon Musk. Now, over the hour yesterday, he talked about all kinds of things, artificial intelligence, Twitter, free speech and more. But it was Tesla that got the early attention. And today was a pretty good day for Tesla investors. Shares up about four and a half percent, outpacing the other automakers. Investors may be feeling bullish following Musk's comments at the shareholder meeting, as well as his exclusive interview with our own David Faber. Musk speaking on Tesla's pricing power and what sets it apart from other EVs. Listen. A lot of people still think Teslas are super expensive because we did start out um, with a, an expensive sports car, then like a slightly less expensive sedan and SUV. Um, but now we're at the point where the starting price of a Tesla is actually below the average uh, selling price of a car in, in the United States. So it, uh, Teslas are actually much more affordable than people realize. Um, and so uh, we should just make sure people at least know that. Right. Um, and that uh, Tesla's also the, the safest cars on the road uh, in, in, in so many ways. There you go. And if you haven't been paying attention, Tesla and Musk, they've cut prices a number of times over just the last couple of months. Let's talk more now about this. Let's get to our panel tonight. That is former Ford Motor president and CEO and CBC contributor Mark Fields and GLJ Research CEO and founder Gordon Johnson. You know, uh, Mark, pardon me for being cynical, but Musk is... Obviously not a dumb guy. And later in the interview, he sort of intimated that the Fed and the economy, he was worried about it. Is he cutting prices in your mind because he's worried about the consumer? Or is it more likely that he's trying to basically destroy every other nation EV business? Well, I actually think, uh, Brian, it's a combination of both. I mean, listen, the bottom line with high interest rates, it's tougher for consumers to afford vehicles. And listen, as he tries to go for, you know, the Model Y and the Model 3 and get kind of mass adoption or, you know, the, the everyday person buying EVs, uh, they they, they got to be less expensive in this kind of current economic environment. 
At the same token, he sees there's a lot of competition already coming in the marketplace, and it's a bit of a land grab. He says yeah. he said very clearly on the on the earnings call they're going for volume over profitability. Yeah, and Gordon, I, I, obviously you're a well-known Tesla critic, but this move, at least from where I'm sitting, appears to be working in terms of market share, not margin, but market share. Right. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. So with respect to market share, they're still seeding market share. Um, they've gotten some gains recently, but, but let me give you some numbers. Let's, let's look at the facts, right? So their backlog has fell from 480,000 cars a year ago to 83,000 cars right now. That's less than two weeks of deliveries. Their inventories in the U.S. and Europe right now are setting at just below record levels. And he said last night that the reason he's cutting prices is because of demand, right? Everybody was saying he's trying to transition everyone to EVs. He said last night it's because of demand. And in fact, he said last night, you know, they're seeing economic headwinds over the next 12 months. We think that's a de facto revision lower in guidance. This is a company that's seeing earnings fall, that's trading at 60 times earnings in an industry that trades at seven times earnings, that's now resorting to marketing, right? When they, they said they were going to never market, it's an auto company. And auto companies traded six times earnings. And like you said last time we spoke, Brian, you know, Warren Buffett said it. In 1905, 2,000 auto companies, nearly all of them went bankrupt. It's a yeah. tough business. And I think Mark can speak to that. But I just, you know, Mark, I feel like when we look at the auto industry, it's like almost like an iCloud Android type thing. And Tesla is the iCloud. I know there's the adapter now and you can, you can but it used to be Tesla was its own thing. In many ways, it still kind of is. It's like the razor blade model as well. And I feel like right now, Musk and Tesla are the iCloud and everybody else. I'm not saying they're BlackBerry or, or Research in Motion or whatever, but they're struggling to catch up. Well, they're coming from uh, behind. I mean, you listen, you got to give Musk credit, right? He, he kind of put the EV market on the map and, and got the whole industry moving towards electric vehicles. So he's got the first mover advantage. But as Gordon said, listen, there's a lot of competition that's coming. His share is down, but you got to put it into perspective. Right. Their share last year was 72 or 75 percent. Now it's about 60. It's still a pretty big number. Mm. But the bottom line is that competition's coming. They are catching up. And, you know, to Gordon's point, they've literally gone from being supply constrained to demand constrained. And that's why I think yesterday I know he did it on the fly, but he talked about new products coming yeah. and he talked about doing advertising. So that's a very clear signal. They got to juice up some tools that they haven't used in the past. Gordon, I, again, I got to say, I know that market share has fallen, but my earlier point was this 60% when your competition, let's see, is VW, GM, Ford, Toyota, Nissan, and Tesla still has 60% market share. I don't know about where you are or where you might live. Around <laughs> here, it's like if I see EVs, it's Tesla, 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 maybe a VW ID4, Tesla, Tesla, Tesla maybe a Rivian, and an occasional Bolt. Right. So what Mark is referring to, he's referring to U.S. market share. The market share in the U.S. has fallen from roughly 75% to roughly 52% first two months of this year. However, in China, right, the biggest and most profitable EV market in the world, their market shares went from 40% to 12%. In Europe, right, where their market share used to be 50%, they're now sitting on roughly 13% market share. Those are two key markets where they're getting hammered. Think about this, guys, right? In the most recent week, Tesla sold 9,990 mm -hmm. 9, cars in China. BYD sold 47,000 cars over the same time frame. But, but have you seen them, Gordon? BYD. Gordon, have you seen them? 
Have you seen those? We could pick them up. We wouldn't even need to drive anywhere. I'm going to lift up the BYD and I'm going to park (laughs) it myself. I mean, there was an article last night I was reading, Mark, about some of these coming Chinese imports. And guess what? In the 1970s, my parents, true story, owned the number three Toyota Celica ever sold in the United States in 1970. People laughed at Toyota back then. Guess what? Hyundai and Kia came in. People laughed at them. That'll never work. Now you got these Chinese EVs about ready to come in. Right. About eleven thousand, fifteen thousand dollars. They're about the size of, you know, my son's little electric car in the yard. But are they going to win? Is China going to ultimately win our EV market when it's supposed to be the great jobs generator and create millions of jobs all over the country? Well, listen, I, 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 I do want to get back to Gordon's point around, you know, the, their market share fall in places like Europe and China. And that is absolutely true. But you also have to understand the pie is a lot bigger there for the EV market. And that's why when, you know, I think the issue around Tesla is not so much the capacity that they have right now. Uh, yes, they have their issues. You saw that in their first quarter earnings with profits and margins down. But it's really around their aspirations and the capacity they're going to be putting in place over the next number of years. I mean, those are very aggressive. And then when you put that in the scheme of what you just mentioned, Brian, you know, the EVs that are coming uh, out to the market in China right now and starting to be exported uh, to Europe just about now, they are very, very competitive. And the one advantage that Tesla has versus the other established OEMs is when you're competing at the coal face against those Chinese competitors in their home market, you learn to get very, very competitive. And that's what the established automakers missed when they pulled out of Japan 40 years ago. So that, that, that's part of what you're seeing in terms of Tesla uh, working so much on efficiency right now. And will yeah. they be successful? You know, that's the big question. There is an EV in China. The, 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 it's called the Mini. It's like the Hong Kong Mini. It sells for 5000 US dollars. It's tiny. I wouldn't fit in it. But people are buying it because it is tiny and it's cheap. Gordon Johnson, Mark Fields, great discussion. Always love talking about it. Folks, all right, meantime, here's what happened to your money today, and it was a good day, right? Even saw the lights of the Goodyear blimp. The Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ all rising about one and one quarter percent. The biggest winner of the day, Comerica, the regional bank. Is everything fine? Is it over? We'll talk about it later on in the show. Biggest loser was insurance brokerage Aon, down two and a half percent. Thinly traded, but there's your futures. Well, we'll call that flat, not in the red. All right, coming up here on Last Call, The two words that may matter more than any other to businesses in the debt ceiling negotiation. Polling girl Frank Luntz here with his surprise insight. Plus, Montana just became the first state to ban TikTok. Yep, for everybody. We'll talk more about it. And also a poll and a stat you've got to hear about how addictive TikTok is to your kids. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. 
They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, welcome back, everybody. Hope you have a great Wednesday. Happy 517, by the way. Kind of a cool day. All right, time now for a quick last call watch list. First up tonight, Target. Check this out. Theft is robbing more and more from the bottom line at Target. Take a listen to CEO Brian Cornell on the company's earnings call earlier today. Worsening shrink rates are putting significant pressure on our financial results. More specifically, based on the results we've seen so far this year, we expect that shrink will reduce our profitability by more than half a billion dollars compared with last year. And while we're doing all we can to address the problem, it's an industry and community issue that can't be solved by a single retailer. Now, shrink is the industry term for stolen or lost merchandise. And yes, you heard that right. Theft or loss, but mostly theft, is going to cut $500 million from Target's profits this year. That's after it cost Target a total of nearly $800 million last year. This is likely not kids coming in and stealing stuff from the front of the store. It's probably big trucks of stuff going out the back door. Tomorrow morning, by the way, keep a close watch on Walmart's latest numbers. They've been suffering from similar problems as well. Also, grabbing our attention today is Take-Two Interactive. Investors hoping for the much-rated Grand Theft Auto 6 video game to be coming soon. Carmaker CEO telling Barron's that they are working on the more robust pipeline. In terms of the company's history, we expect that to come to fruition meaningfully beginning in fiscal 2024, whatever that means. Grand Theft Auto is one of the most lucrative franchises in any type of media, not just video games, any type of media in history. That stock, by the way, way up after hours. Finally, we were watching Cisco. Shares are sinking after hours. Unexpected 22% drop in orders last quarter. Spooking investors. That coming despite better than expected overall numbers. And a slight increase in guidance. The stock is lower. Meantime, bank stocks, bank stocks had a very good day today. They led the market. Shares of regional banks all surging on the news that Western Alliance announcing it is seeing deposits grow by more than $2 billion. That, of course, coming off the banking crisis of March and April. We'll see if it's over. So what does this mean, whether or not the crisis is behind us? Well, your next guest is the CEO with a really unique worldview. He is the chief executive of tractor and construction maker CNH Industrial. You know them from huge global brands like Case. He's also on the board of U.S. Bank Corp., and he's the former CEO of motorcycle and sport vehicle maker Polaris. So Scott Wine sees the world in a way that many can't in almost all segments of the global economy. Welcome you back. Have you been here before, Scott? I have not we've been. been. We've been to you in, in, in Huntsville when you are at Polaris. I've been in the studio before, but never your last call. So thanks for having me on. Well, I, Scott, I really appreciate it. You've got such this, this worldview here. First off, before you get into your core business, you're on the board of U.S. Bank Corp. I don't know how much you can say. Is the worst, is the crisis behind us? First of all, um, what I will say about U.S. Bank is Andy Cesari and the team have got it in rock-solid shape. It really is, um, I would argue, one of the best banks out there. I don't think many banks are in as good a shape as U.S. Bank is, um, and therefore I, I don't necessarily think it's Do okay. you think the banks that failed, the ones that got crushed, that that was just bad management? Um, poor risk management, for sure. I mean, just understanding... You know, how to manage risk, which is a a core competency at U.S. Bank, uh, just wasn't done. 
Let's talk about CNH because you're you're in this huge construction and ag business in many ways a leading indicator. You truly are a global company. You're based in the Netherlands, U.S. headquarters in Chicago. You got an operation in London, and you're sort of con- controlled by the Fiat family out of out of Italy. Are we headed for a global recession? Are we headed for a global slowdown? Well, you have to bifurcate my my personal opinion from many years of investing and watching. I do think there's a likelihood of a U.S. recession in probably um, some or many of the countries in Europe. I think the ag economy is going to remain relatively strong, and there's lots of reasons for that. Yeah, why, why would we have a, a slowdown or a recession in parts of the economy, but ag stays hot? It has historically been the same. I mean, ag trades on its own cycle, um, not necessarily correlated. But really, the, the primary factor is as long as soft commodity prices stay relatively high, they've dropped quite considerably. Corn, wheat, things Corn, like that. Corn, but input costs have come down. So farmer income's you know, still in, in stable shape. And as long as that holds, there's not much used equipment out there. Um, there's a demand for the new technology that's coming. Uh, the age of the fleet is quite old. So there's a need for a replacement cycle. So there's a lot of fundamental strengths to the ag cycle that I think give it legs beyond the overall economy. What about your input costs? I'm thinking about steel for these giant you know, case construction diggers, or what about humans? Labor costs, something we've talked about a lot over the last couple of years. Labor costs are up, steel costs are down. You know, net, net, we're seeing costs, certainly inflation, low inflation is still inflation, so we're seeing it, but it's not nearly as high as it was, and we're seeing our ability to get after cost um, accelerate. Yeah, and, and you look at the world, and you guys have a huge operation in Ukraine because that's obviously one of the agricultural capitals. So, so by the way, best to you and your employees over there, and hopefully everybody's doing okay in these insane times. You've got to deal with those types of geopolitics. Russia, there's a lot of stuff happening with China now. How do you navigate in the boardroom business? And you're a, you're a Naval Academy guy, um, ex-Navy officer, or always a Navy officer, excuse me, um, how do you see the, the geopolitical world, like the China threat, everything else? Well, I mean, first of all, the, the Ukraine situation was horrible. Our team did a lot of work to make sure we still got equipment into the region that those farmers could, can still operate. And, and really, they ended up getting, you know, 70-some percent of the grain exported out of the country. So that was a relative win. You know, we spent a good bit of time exiting Russia. You know, we had a four to $500 million business there that we've completely gotten out of. Um, so, you know, that we just exercised. You know, China is a, a great opportunity for us. For China for China, we call it. So we've got a China manufacturing plant, a very strong team. And we think the mechanization of their agriculture can be helpful to us in that region. We're just trying to be less reliant upon China for the rest of our, our global output. There you go. CNH with a truly global view. I think you were just in India. Just came back from and India. By, and by the way, by the way, we, we did this, I think it was last week on our Insider Buying. You're the Scott Wine that bought a million shares of U.S. Bank Corp. Or a million dollars worth. million dollars. million shares would have been better. Be a lot more. Probably million dollars tr- worth. million dollars worth. And you also told me that you didn't, it wasn't a straight buy, but you put basically put some money into CNH. Am I well, allowed to say that? You know, you can. I mean, it's just it's restricted units that vest, and, and most people... Um, Sell to pay the taxes. Sell to pay the taxes, and I just choose to write a check for the taxes so I can keep all the shares. I so really... a, sign, a, sign, a bullish sign from an insider at both CNH and USB. Fair to say? Fair to say. Scott Wine, fair to say we're glad you're on set. Thank you. Don't be a stranger. Thanks, Brian. All right, still ahead. What the great state of Montana just did that should make all social media companies nervous, plus a terrifying stat on just how addictive TikTok really is.
Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back. I got a news alert for you. The state of Montana has banned TikTok, not just for government employees or kids. The ban applies to everyone. TikTok is over in Montana. Law goes into effect January 1st. Now, TikTok hitting back, stating that the Montana ban, quote, infringes on the First Amendment rights of the people of Montana. Reminder that TikTok is a China-based company where social media does not enjoy nearly any freedom of speech. All right, and this all brings us to today's RBI, and this will blow your mind and probably scare you a bit, especially if you've got kids or teens. The Reboot Foundation, which is a Paris-based research group, did something called the TikTok Challenge. No, not some stunt or dare like that usually goes around in the app. They did a study and a questionnaire of TikTok users, and what they found should make any of you sit up and take notice. Here are some stats from their findings. The average TikTok user is on the platform for two hours per day. 29% of younger girls on TikTok spend an average of four hours per day on the app. Folks, that's 28, what, hours a week? Basically, they spend an entire extra day staring at TikTok. And here's where it gets really scary. The Reboot Foundation also found that heavy TikTok users are having a harder time figuring out what is true and what is not and tend to believe more and more of what they see on TikTok the more they use it. An example from their findings, and we'll post it. 42% of heavy users said they found the info they hear, quote, reliable. That is nearly twice the rate of people who don't use TikTok that much. And holy science book, 17% of heavy TikTok users could not say definitively if the earth was round. Nearly one in five didn't know or couldn't say if the earth was round or flat. How big could this issue be? Well, one billion people use TikTok. Tens of millions of American kids and teens are addicted to the app, actually addicted. That is not our opinion because we saved this part, the best in air quotes, for last. The study also found that 64% of all teenage users of TikTok would give up their voting rights for a year if they got to keep the app. I want you to think about that. Heavy TikTok users would trade watching videos or posting videos over voting, over the core of a functioning democracy, all from a company based in a country that is not always considered maybe the best when it comes to a representative democracy. We wonder if Congress is listening, random, but interesting. All right, with Montana moving forward with TikTok bans, maybe teens in the States will spend a little less time on social media, maybe not. Joining us now to talk about that and other issues is serial entrepreneur and chairman of X Media, Gary Vaynerchuk. Also, by the way, with 15 million followers on TikTok, how do you react, Gary, to the Montana news? You know, we're living in unprecedented political times in America, and this is part of the conversation that's growing, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, how it all plays out. 
You know, I used to watch you back when you were just a wine salesman trying to. And by the <laughs> way, I bought a lot of your wine, so you're welcome. And you, Thank but, you. But, but you not only are you a great businessman and entrepreneur, but you also figured out the power of YouTube and social media earlier than, than almost most. So I, my guess is you're on all the different platforms right now. We'll see what happens with TikTok. But would your lesson to other you know, influencer type entrepreneurs be you better be spread out out there? Oh, yeah. Even if there wasn't government realities, there's just consumer behavior realities, right? I only care about where the attention of the end consumer is. As you can imagine, over the last year, people are asking me all the time, what happens if TikTok gets banned? I'm like, I don't even care if all of social media gets banned. I just care about where attention is. When I look at some of the data that you throw out, four hours on TikTok, well, I lived seven hours a day on television. I consumed four hours of CNBC in the background all the time. So the human behavior of media consumption always evolves. So whether TikTok gets banned, whether all of social gets banned, the attention is going to go somewhere else. And whether that's Spotify or iHeartRadio or CNBC or walking outside, the reality is I'm agnostic to the distribution I'm just focused on being able to storytell within it. Is, t- is TikTok that much better? I mean, it's growth. Nothing like it has ever grown like this before. It's growth fast, even by social media standards. Yeah, but that's happened to every platform because there's more internet users, there's more forum users. It's like the next TikTok, wherever it comes from, will grow faster than TikTok. That's just the way it is. Is it better? Look, it did what Tumblr did a decade ago and built on the interest graph not on the social graph. So instead of following people, you're following the things you care about. Well, that's how a lot of things actually work. So yeah, I, I think it, it was a better advancement musically on TikTok, building on the interest graph. And now obviously you've got Meta and Twitter and YouTube Shorts doing the same thing because it's a better you know, user experience when you're consuming things you're actually interested in versus people that you've historically had relationships with who might be posting yeah. things that you're not interested in. So I want to talk about AI. You're, you're, at, you're, you're at your big conference, VCon. That's where you yep. are in the background. Talk about crypto, talking about AI, et cetera. We had uh, hedge fund giant and New York Mets owner, by the way, Stephen Cohen, come out and make some comments at a conference today. He's bullish on the stock market in part because of, of AI. It's interesting. Um, how bullish are you on AI? Well, it depends on the or context not. of Or not. Change. Maybe it's just one of these pipe yeah, dreams, yeah. you know, like it's going to change the world. Ten no, years later, we're still waiting. It's, no, I think it's a pretty profound technology. I think anyone who spent an hour on ChatGPT or the journey or any of these products, you've got so many people pontificating, speaking about AI, and half the people at my dinner tables or I'm interacting with when I ask them, well, have they used it? The answer is no. So, you know, you know this. People get very emotional about headlines and theory and don't do things in practicality. The technology is profound. It takes what a lot of viewers that are watching right now, that eureka moment we all had when we used the search engine for the first time 25 years ago, and it's a 20x experience. So the reality is it's very profound technology. So I'm bullish on it for making us more productive. I like when new technologies come around and commoditize mundane, what can now become mundane work so that humans can free up time and do real things. As a matter of yeah. fact, with the AI headlines, oh my God, it's taking away everyone's job. Well, that was the headlines when the tractor was invented. When the tractor was invented and everybody worked in farms, this machine was going to take everyone's job. Yeah. What it did was it opened up hours for people to get more profound, highly impactful jobs. And so I'm bullish on how massive the technology is, but I think some of the concerns are real. This is really that powerful. Well, you're going to. We have to be thoughtful and. 
I believe that's I believe that's Lucas Oil Field behind you because you're in Indianapolis for yes. VCon. You got Timbaland, yes. Young Gravy, Scooter Braun, Ariana Huffington, and a, and a bunch of other thought leaders. Crypto, you call it a super conference. Hope you're going to St. Elmo's, maybe getting a steak. What, what can we expect? 100%. There you go. What can we expect from VCon two? What I care most about is the cross section of pop culture and attention, and then business operators and practicality. I think the world, especially this audience, focuses too much on yesterday overvalues tomorrow and misses what's actually happening today, what's actively happening in popular culture, what do consumers care about right now, and more importantly, how is media and advertising working this exact second? And so there's profound leaders from all sectors that I hope are going to motivate the you know seven to 10,000 people that are going to come speak on this show. I, I love it. By the way, the way you describe the conference is kind of how we're describing this show. So maybe next year we should do like, do last call live from VCon. Right. You, you, you haven't oh. seen the show until I'm in a T-shirt. Oh. When I do the show in a T-shirt, we're going to lose. <laughs> we're going to lose ninety nine percent of our audience. And I'll wear a suit and tie, my friend, and we'll switch. Bring, we'll do the old switcheroo. Bring some wine. <laughs> That'll make it a really good show. Gary Vaynerchuk. Thank you very much, buddy. Appreciate it. VCon two. All right. Great lineup there, by the way. Still ahead is working from home immoral. Elon Musk thinks so and has some harsh words for staying out of the office. What do you think? We'll hit that next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. In case you missed it, Elon Musk joined CNBC interview and had some, shall we say, provocative comments on work from home. Listen. It's like... It's like it's like really you're going to work from home and you're going to make everyone else who made your car come work to the fact work in the factory. You're going to make the people who make your food that gets delivered that they can't work from home. The you know the the, the people that that come fix your house they they can't work from home, but you can. Does that seem morally right? That's messed up. You see it as a moral issue. Yes. I mean, I see it more as and just it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's a productivity issue, but yeah. it's also a moral issue. He wants to get off the moral high horse with the work from home. Um, because they're asking everyone else to not work from home while they do. By the way, the bleeps were, were curse words. Elon has required Tesla employees to work a minimum of 40 hours a week in the office since last year, but Tesla apparently in the minority when it comes to working in the office. According to Scoop Technologies, only 42% of companies require employees to be in the office full time. And that is actually down from 49% earlier this year. In other words, the return to office trend may not only not have stalled, but gone backward. All this is the majority of Americans cannot or maybe were never able to work remotely. They were the ones that were keeping our economy going, stocking grocery stores, driving trucks. So is it like, is Musk right? Is it unfair? Let's talk about it with our panel. Joining us today, New York Post business reporter Lydia Moynihan and LaSalle Network CEO Tom Gimbel. LaSalle Network, by the way, a nationwide staffing and recruiting firm based in Chicago. So, Tom, you're the perfect person to have on this. You're, you're a guy that wants to get people jobs. I've got to imagine a lot of people that you find who would be great employees are saying, I'll take that job, Tom, but I'm not going back to the office or I'm only going back to the office two or three days a, work, a week. Is that immoral? Uh, well, number one, you're correct, Brian, that a lot of people are still saying that. Number two, the reason they're getting away with it is because unemployment's still under 4%. And, and number three, 
the, the line of morality is, is interesting to describe, but I will tell you that without sacrifice, society is doomed. And if the sacrifice is commuting or going into an office, so the store that is in the downtown area can have people to buy their product, that the mechanic can fix the cars, that the dry cleaner does the laundry. I mean, there's a reason we have problems in this country right now, and that's because everybody's saying, me first, team second. Yeah. You know, and listen, Lydia, he called it the laptop class. And guess what? The three of us probably are the laptop class. All right. I mean, everybody remembers we were broadcasting from home. We'd have like the iPad and like the record albums in the background. You know, so I'm not going to cast aspersions because, you know, we'd put on 16 masks and run into our grocery store while there's people who are working there 10 and 12 hours a day. I think that's what he was going for. Yeah, I also think it's important to note, I think it's illogical to say that because one person can't work from home that nobody can work from home. But I think it is fair to have that standard company by company. And Elon Musk runs companies that are very manufacturing heavy. He is expecting people to be there on the floor of Tesla putting cars together. He's expecting people to be out in the field launching rockets. And so if he has that expectation for his employees, mind you, who are making much less money than he is, I think it's very reasonable to expect that he and other white-collar workers are also there spending just as much time with just as much skin in the game. And I think where a lot of this resentment and frustration uh, stems from that I think he was getting at is that during coronavirus, you did have companies that were bifurcated, where you had executives of an airline company or an e-commerce store. They were just chilling in their pajamas, slapping and zooming, and then they were expecting... In Maui. In in Maui. But they were expecting their employees to be potentially exposing themselves to a lethal virus. So I think there needs to be consistency. There's already so much inequity, so much inequality in the workforce that you shouldn't have that amplified within each company. You could see both. And by the way, we had a lot of women and men here at CNBC and NBC Universal that couldn't work from home either. There's certain technical jobs that had to be done here. And God bless them. And thank you to all of them, by the way. And Tom, I can see both sides, right? Because I can see the side of people saying, you know what, I'm getting part of my life back. I can see my kids' little league game. I'm not, I'm not jamming up the roads, what? destroying what? the environment. What? But also, hold on, let me finish. What? At the same time, downtown Chicago in parts of it is a wasteland. Same as Chicago and, or San Francisco, and you're putting people out of business that used to make their living off of, you know, selling me coffee in the morning. I, I think we're missing the, the point a little bit when you say getting their life back. If we go back to 2019 and before, people weren't upset about their life. Their life was just fine. Because they didn't know and what they, was possible, I think. They didn't know well, they could live in Bozeman. For dinner and then I get it. I think that's what's possible. Just because you can have something doesn't mean you should get it. I mean, something's happened in this country that, that society is without sacrifice for the greater good. And to be locked up in your house all day, whether you have the right to leave or not, isn't necessarily good to not interact with people. I'd throw another thing out there that Elon didn't touch on, and that is there's actually less diversity in the workforce uh, because it's all virtual. It's it's virtual diversity. No, when you go in and you work with people every day of yeah. a different skin color, religion, gender, that's diversity of thought. When you're doing it via a camera, that's we're, we're screwing everything up. And I think he's right now. Do I agree with Lydia that if if a if a company can have 100 percent of their people remote and they choose to do that, is that okay? Absolutely. But if somebody puts the capital up front, they run the company, they own it, they invest in it, and they want to bring people in, guess what? That's their prerogative. That's a good point. Listen, Tom, I think he, I think he nailed it, Lydia, which is the idea that, you know, to your point, you, you, get, you, get, you advance by getting known by the management and the bosses, 
They see you. They trust you. They know your name. You're around. I, I do worry this this still virtual environment we're in. D.C., by the way, is less than half occupied. Our federal government, half the people are just staying at home all the time. No one's going to move. No one's going to quit. No one's going to get promoted because everyone's just going to sit behind their laptop. And, I, you know, and the young person who's really hungry is going to be screed over for lack of a better term. Well, I think no, that's the tip of that's the, the Lydia, iceberg Tom, when it comes Tom, to problems you, Lydia, in go D.C. Ahead. Pardon? Go ahead, Lydia. Uh, look, yeah, I, I think that's always a concern. I think you're going to have people who are motivated who are going to go back on their own accord. But I think, you know, is that a question of morality or is that just a question of motivation? I, I, I do wonder if, if how, what percentage of the Department of Transportation is virtual, because that would be just kind of... <laughs> thank you, Tom. I think you can Tom, absolutely you for be that, productive from home. Uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of issues going on with government, more than just the remote work. Yeah, I, yeah. there we go. Lydia, Tom, good conversation, powerful. People are passionate on both sides. I'm not getting back on the roads. All right, coming up, the two words businesses are desperate to hear, desperate for the debt ceiling negotiations. Frank Luntz has them. He's next. All right, welcome back. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. This one, kind of a biggie. Charles Schwab will sell $2.5 billion in long-term debt. Why do you care? Well, because being able to sell debt could be a big deal for a company whose shares got crushed in the regional banking crisis. Schwab saying it is going to use the money for investing in the business and growth. Schwab shares actually are a little bit lower after hours. Bit of a surprise there. All right, and finally, a high-stakes meeting with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and major bank CEOs will take place tomorrow. Those CEOs will include Jamie Dimon, Citigroup's Jane Frazier, and Bank of America's Brian Moynihan. The conversation will focus on the fallout of the banking crisis and the ongoing debt ceiling negotiation. And the debt ceiling is weighing heavily on the minds of business leaders across America. We're just two weeks out from possibly defaulting on our debt. And yesterday, we did hear some hints of optimism from both President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy post-White House meeting. But this morning on Squawk Box... Speaker McCarthy and House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries singing a slightly different tune. If we're going to have a thoughtful conversation about deficit reduction, uh, that that conversation can't simply be one-sided. We're not going to solve the fiscal health of the American people over the next 10 years in two weeks. Look, we could be really sensible and responsible about this. Um, how much is too much? You're sitting almost at a $32 trillion debt. Your debt is now larger than your economy. You're going to pay more in interest in the next 10 years than you paid in the last 80 years. We can no longer ignore this problem. But President Biden reiterated his belief today that the country will not default. We're going to come together because there's no alternative to do the right thing for the country. The leaders will all agree we will not default. Every leader has said that. Both parties, of course, vying for public sympathy and really the sort of fiscal high ground. It's politicking at its finest. So what should each side do to win over the public and business? We're pleased to be joined now by political pollster and strategist and author Frank Luntz. Frank, uh, good to have you on. What, what would uh, the two words, what are some of the key things business would need to hear? Three words, actually. Stability, predictability, and security. Because in the end, number one, business does not want surprises. 
They want to know that things are going to happen in a certain way. Number two, it has to be prompt. It has to be quick because business does not want this debate to go on and on. And number three, it has to be done for the long term, not just some short term fix. And the challenge right now is that the president and the Speaker of the House are actually quite far apart on the legislation itself. The Speaker says we can do this without raising taxes. The president says we have to raise taxes, mm. the wealthy and on corporations. Do they want to get an agreement? Absolutely. Can they get agreement? It's not clear at this point. Hardcore Democrats are going to blame the Republicans. Oh, they raised it under Trump. Just do it again. Hardcore Republicans are going to blame President Biden's unwillingness to negotiate. He's got a budget and that's it. So I kind of wonder what each side is doing. Are they going for the couple million people in the middle that may swing 2024? Is, is that why the language and sort of some of the tweets and everything that we're seeing might matter? I wish I could say yes, because in the end, on something like the debt ceiling, we're all going to have to jump in this together. The president is correct about that. But the truth is the Democrats are focused on the progressives. The Republicans are focused on the conservatives, the, problem, the Freedom Caucus. And the only group that's talking sense right now is the Problem Solvers Caucus, who says it has to be a cooperated compromise solution. And in the end, this can't just be some cosmetic cuts that it has to be significant, has to be meaningful and measurable. Mm -hmm. So, Brian, I could give you a whole lexicon, but the business community is not interested in language. And the reason why I think we're going to have trouble is that I don't believe they're going to get it done this week. They've got next week, and then they go away from Memorial Day. How can yeah. you leave Washington without having this done in advance? We'll see if they do. By the way, I, I ran a Twitter poll. It was mostly my polls, mostly Franker for fun. And I understand there's going to be confirmation bias. People who follow me or watch CNBC are probably going to lean a little more fiscally conservative, so I get it. But I asked this. So what is the bigger issue for Washington in the debt ceiling debates? Is it taxes too low or spending too high? I've never had it was 89.4 percent spending too high, 10.6 percent taxes too low. I get maybe the people who follow me, how they might lean. I've never had a poll skewed that far. Is that just Brian, one thing or is that a challenge to the president? No, it's a challenge to the president. You're absolutely correct. Nothing matters more to the American people than cutting wasteful Washington spending. And for the business community, they have to do this every single day to run a company that functions and functions well. And this is why they don't understand why they're always the focus for the Democrats, always the go-to place for money. Let's just tax corporations more. Corporate America is speaking out with one voice and they're saying to Washington, learn to do with less, be more efficient, more effective, and more accountable. You know that uh, tax receipts went up 96% over 10 years, including the pandemic highs, Frank, tax receipts up 96%, population grew 7%, and we still have nearly record deficits. Yes, the, businesses, the end. There you go. businesses do not believe yeah. that they're overtaxed. They believe that they're spending too much money. Frank Luntz, always a pleasure to get you on, my man. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up, how the WNBA's new season plans to dunk on last year's record performance. Commissioner Kathy Engelberg will join us next. All right, welcome back. We're just two days away from the WNBA opening night. This season might be the biggest yet. The WNBA expected to rake in between 180 to 200 million in combined league and team revenue, up from 102 million just four years ago. That, according to Bloomberg, 
will also be Phoenix Mercury Brittany Griner's return to the league after being in prison in Russia for 10 months. WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert joining us now with all that and more. Welcome. On set. Good to have you. Yeah, great to be here, Congrats on your success. Um, I know uh, Brittany Griner has gotten a pretty warm reception standing for the national anthem the other day. How do you see her return macro to the league? Well, it was a big burden on the players and the whole league last year that she wasn't here and that she was wrongfully detained in Russia. And so it just weighed heavy. So I think it's a positive this year. She's doing great. Um, Tip-off is Friday night. And I think it'll just, again, and she's using her platform to help people realize there are other wrongfully detained Americans around the world in the Bring Our Families Home campaign. So, you know, just typical for a WNBA player to use that platform. Uh, are, are the WNBA fans, are they basketball fans? Are they women's basketball fans? Have you been ga- gaining, I'm sure you're friends with Adam Silver, the NBA, so you're not going to quote dunk on him. But we're watching stuff with, the you know, some of the star players flashing guns and video and stuff. And you just wonder, are you picking up viewers from a frustrated NBA audience? Well, with, with the momentum off the NCAA Women's uh, Final Four this year, we're picking up fans who really love the women's game, the pure form of the game, they tell us. Uh, and we have a, we skew maybe a little younger fan, maybe um, a more women's fan mm-hmm. as well. Um, I wa- Listen, I'm a Virginia Tech Hokie. Yeah. And the Hokie Women hey. Final Four, I watched more women's basketball this year, and I thought this is really just, to your point, really good sort of basketball, not like one star spinning, you know, dunking. It was right. more fast passing, a fast A lot of three-pointers last yeah. year. We had nine triple-doubles last year. In the 25 years before, there had only been 11. So the quality of the game has hugely been upgraded. What these players are putting on the court every night is the best basketball We're seeing the teams, well, there's one, the Phoenix Suns, trying to change the way they do TV from cable regional sports networks to streaming and other things, and now they're in some big legal fight. How does the WNBA position itself from a media standpoint? Yeah, there's obviously huge disruption, Brian, as you know, in the media landscape. The streamers are being disrupted, obviously cable, cord cutters, Roku-enabled, all the different things that we're seeing, again, in a fan base that wants to access live sports, premium live sports. So um, we'll have uh, 205 of our 240 games on national platforms this year. That's a historic high. We've never had more than 140 so I think um, companies, media companies are seeing that this content is important to them. We're the first scripts, just uh, launched script sports mm-hmm. in the fall. We're the first property on, um, you know, kind of the new old OTA. Our pay scales, I mean, listen, you're going to have people that make $231 million, like the gentleman I just mentioned, but are the pay scales narrowing at all? How are they doing for, for, the, for the women? Right. So we're working really hard on an economic model. That's why I always like coming on CNBC on an economic model to drive more revenue so that we can put more money in the players' pockets. We're we're now looking at bigger prize pools, bonuses for playoffs. Um, Obviously, a lot of this is collectively bargained, but also we have to grow revenue in order to afford travel benefits that I know the players want longer term. And you have to build this economic model for the next 50 years. It's not even for the next five. And that's what we're working on. We're going to double revenue. And I'm really um, corporate partners are stepping up in a big way. We just announced CarMax today as one of our premier WNBA changemaker partners. So really a a lot of momentum with companies like AT&T, Nike, Deloitte, U.S. Bank, and Google, and CarMax keep it, joining them. Keep, keep it going. Keep the momentum going. Kathy yes. Engelbert, we thank really you, appreciate it, by the way. Thank you. And it's good luck on the, here. And congrats and good luck on the season. Thank you. All right, a quick programming note before we go. On July 25th in Los Angeles, CBC and Boardroom hosts will host Game Plan, which is a high-powered event bringing in the most influential leaders 
across the sports landscape, including athletes, owners, investors, and innovators, to talk the new opportunities at the intersection of sports and business. You want to go? You can scan the QR code or go to cnbcevents.com slash game hyphen plan. All right, well, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That is it for your last call tonight. I am off tomorrow. I will see you on Friday. Eamon Javers in the seat. Shark Tank is next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.